Uh, I'm Luke. I'm going to be reading Psalm 104. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. They flowered, they flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys, to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens human hearts. Oil to make their faces shine and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted, there the birds make their nests. The stork has its home in the junipers. The high high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are a refuge for the hirax. He made the moon to mark the seasons and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work, to their labour until evening. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him.
as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. Here ends the reading. Hey, thanks so much again for, uh, for inviting me, for having me to open God's Word. It's always a pleasure and a privilege. Uh, I want to start with a story that some of you may know. Uh, the world's greatest neurosurgeon, of course, a man called Dr. Stephen Strange. Uh, he was revered by his peers, feared by his interns, no doubt, sought after by his patients, and had a reputation for choosing only the most difficult of cases. Years of of hard work, incredible natural talent, no doubt, got him to the the top of his field. But his career, those of you who know the story, uh, his career ends in an instant when he glances at his phone while driving. Taking his eyes off the road, he suffers a horrific crash. His uh, uh, fingers are mangled in the wreckage. And as he wakes, he looks down at these surgeon's fingers to see that they uh, have been completely reconstructed. It'll take him a couple of months to realise or to accept what everyone else can see, which is that he will never operate again. Dr Strange, the world's greatest neurosurgeon, will never perform surgery again. Well, uh, stripped of his work and his identity that that work gives him, what does he do? He spirals. He lashes out at those around him. He decides that there's no point to life. And what's uh, interesting to me is that the people around him can see exactly what's going on. The people around him can see why losing his career was such a devastating blow to his identity and how vain his attempts are to try to get that part of himself back and and somehow restore his hands. Uh, His former lover, Christine, tries to persuade him that a life without being a surgeon can be worth living, but he won't hear her. She tries to persuade him that you still have your relationships, but he will not hear it. There are other meaningful ways you can save lives, but he cannot hear it. And the reason he cannot hear it is, as uh, Tilda Swinton helps him find out his motivation for his work was never about healing others it was about his own identity who his surgeries made him so he um, uh, has a bit of a a moment goes on to become a wizard in the uh, uh, an important part of the Marvel Marvel, uh, Cinematic Universe as well Um, he's a fictional character for those of you who are still very confused right fictional character Marvel Doctor Strange the point is we can't go on to become wizards when that happens to us So where does our resilience come from? Where does our ability to confront work, which is sometimes wonderful but also often uh, tedious at best and soul-destroying at worst? Last uh, week I met up with a real doctor. Uh, We're having a a, a drink. He's an emergency doctor uh, who had been through a similar journey without the wizard bit at the end. Not the car crash either, actually, but just finding himself gutted by his profession. He'd come to a point of a deep disillusionment with... He said, not with medicine, but with the health industry. And he realised that the reasons that he became a doctor weren't actually really about others, they were about him, about his identity, the challenge for him of proving that he could 
do it, that he could be smart enough, that he could work hard enough to become a doctor, to become fully self-actualised. I asked him out of interest, would this realisation have come if he hadn't had the whole COVID thing? And he said, actually, yes, it sped it up, right? being worked to the ground in hospitals, sped up the process, but he reckons it was a looming disaster. And I don't think he's the only person in the medical profession or in any profession, to be honest, who has this kind of unhealthy relationship with their work. I think it's endemic. Because the, uh, the job sites, what do they tell you? The job sites will tell you, find that career that just so gets you out of bed in the moment intrinsically that you would do it without being paid. Find, find the point where all your personal strengths and desires are fulfilled in your workplace. The job that gives you not only intrinsic satisfaction but also the highest pay, the greatest colleagues, Alignment with your personal goals and gifts and abilities and passions. Find the job that was made for you and you were made for it. Now, look, if you find a job like that, good on you. Go for it. But I think most of us, well, we're going to fall short of that ideal. We're being set up like Dr. Strange for it all to come crashing down, but less less of the flying through space bit, I think, for most of us. So what does it mean to be a thriving and resilient disciple of Jesus in the workplace? What does it mean to set ourselves up not for that kind of failure and disappointment, but to enter our professional lives well-placed to be resilient disciples? That's what we want. One of the big trends the research is telling us, and I think the reason why we've um, got this topic that we want to look at tonight, is because a big trend in the people who are resilient disciples of Jesus is that they get how God and their work fit together. Right? They get how God and their work fit together. How turning up to work every day is part of their worship of God. How their purpose in their work aligns with God's purposes in the world. How their work is part of their calling. How their integrity in work pleases God. And I think fundamentally just that what they're doing for most of their life, and it is most of your life, matters to God. So that's what we're going to look at with the help of Psalm 104. Uh, just to say some, something at the outset which uh, might be helpful. Um, when you hear work, I want you to think a big definition of work. Because right? there's lots of different types of work. Right? When I go to the office and mark 30 te- uh, essays on the Old Testament, all excellent, I assure you, um, that's work, right? That's, that's hard work, that's labour. Most of my job is answering emails, like every job. Um, but that's work, okay? That's work. But also, for the other three or four days a week, when I change my daughter's nappies, can I tell you, friends, that is work. When I um, play with my son with the Lego and the blocks, for him, that's not work. That's play. For me, particularly like the 400th time we've played the same game, that's definitely work. So whether you're going to an office or whether you're studying, that's hard work. I mean, you might not get paid for it. But when you learn things, when you prepare for future um, professions and careers, when you do an apprenticeship, when you apply for jobs, when you attend job interviews, that's work. And when you create something beautiful where there wasn't something beautiful before, that's work and it matters. And we see um, from our 
um, passage today, Psalm 104, the first thing I want us to, to, to start with as we think about work and all its different kinds is this principle. God is a worker. All right, we got that? God is a worker. Show you what I mean. Uh, this psalm talks beautifully about the creation of the world. When God created the world. Uh, verse 5, he set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You, we're now talking to God, you covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cross the earth. Or or flick forward to, to verse 24. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So that's pretty clear. God creates the world and that is his first act of work in creation. But, you know, it doesn't stop on day six of creation. It continues. He continues to sustain and provide for everything, everyone, all of us. Verse 14. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine and bread that sustains their hearts. I love this reminder, by the way, that that wine and oil and food and bread, they're they're part of God's good gifts to us. Just think about this little miracle for a second. And I, I know it's all about kind of chemistry and biology and stuff, but just think about the miracle that it is, that if you put sort of wheat product that's a bit old in a corner of your house for long enough, it will become either beer or sourdough, depending on the circumstances. Right, which, I mean, I take that as proof that God loves us and, and Melbourne is his spiritual home, right? Like, you, you just leave that in the corner of your house and suddenly you have bread and wine or beer, or, right? That's God, that's a miracle. That's God's provision for his people. But how does God provide for people? Well, verse 21. For the animals where the lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. Now, if a lion comes your way looking for its dinner, that's your cue to run. But how do humans get their food? The way humans get fed is slightly different. Did you notice that? All the other animals in this psalm, God just sort of feeds them. But what do humans get to do? Verse 14. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate. Right? We're part of the action, bringing forth food from the earth. We don't just get to eat grass. He gives us plants for us to care for, a garden to tend. I'm not very good at that, but my mum is. My brother, who's a farmer, he is. And God invites us into that work. Verse 23, the people go out to their work, to their labour until evening. So God's work in in creating and then sustaining the world is something that we as creatures get to be part of. Do you see that? You're invited to God's workplace. All the creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. 
So when you ask, you know, does God feed you or do the farmers feed you? The answer is both. Because the farmers are doing God's work. And um, the great reformer Martin Luther made a deep discovery in this regard. Or rediscovery, it's there in the psalm. He said that God is milking the cows through, through the vocation of the milkmaid. Now I don't know how many milkmaids we have here or if that's even the politically correct term for that anymore. Moving along. Uh, let's test this theory. Can we test this theory? Can I have... Uh, what are you... Anyone here studying for a career? No one at UniChurch is studying for a career. That's a problem. We need to talk about that. Okay. Madam, what, what, is, your, what is your profession you're studying for? Teacher. teacher. Is teaching the Lord's work? Absolutely. Is God in favour of ignorance or knowledge? Is God in favour of ignorance or knowledge? Come on, work with me here. Knowledge. So the teacher is doing the Lord's work, taking uncultivated minds and making them smart enough to get through life. All right, let's try, come on, let's try a harder one. Anyone? Yeah, you sir. Finance. Is the Lord in finance? Well, put it this way. When the farmer makes an agreement with the supermarket to sell the food at a certain price, how does that farmer get paid? through a well-ordered, regulated financial system through which that farmer, he or she, can get a loan from a bank at fair terms with sufficient capital available for them to be able to confidently invest the millions of dollars it takes to invest in a crop that will come in the future. So yes, the reason there is bread on your shelves is because of the finance people. Come on, give me a hard one. Madam. A, A curatorship. That's an easy one. Is God in favour of ugly things or beautiful things? <laughs> Come on, look around the room. Would God, if there's a God who's in favour of ugliness, would he have made you all so beautiful? All right? I'm trying to endear myself with you, but it's true. <laughs> right? God is in favour of beauty, not disorder. And so as you cur- curate the, the cultural uh, artefacts of different cultures and times and places and bring them together meaningfully for people to enjoy and be inspired by, and be moved by, you are putting into a space of chaos, beauty and order, which God is in favour of. None of these are very hard. I talked to a professional poker player earlier this week. That one might have tested me a little bit, but unless, I mean, I think unless your career is running a pyramid scheme or making pornography, to be honest, I think God's in it. Right? I, I, I really do. I think you and the milkmaid and all the professions, God is in that work. You are joining with his work. And just think for a moment of the beauty in that image for a second. God the Father who who gives food for everyone, the animals, the people, he's inviting you into his work in this world to create beauty, to create order, to create prosperity. And he probably doesn't need your help. Here's the thing. um, We had a bit of a project to build some cupboards at our house. And I invited my three- and five-year-old into that process. Uh, so it would have taken me up to a day to do it on my own, but with their help, it was easily three weeks. All right? and, and look, if your life is dull, I recommend uh, just giving a paint roller and a saw to a three- and five-year-old and just seeing kind of how that turns out. All right? But it was worth it because the pride, the pride they had in their dad bringing them along into the process of creation was worth every terrifying second of it. 
That's what God does with you and me. He invites you into his work in the world. And that is a great privilege. The point is, whatever you're doing, um, it's God's work. Uh, Sky Jatani puts it like this, if you're creating beauty, abundance or order, and they're the three categories we can think about, and many of you are going into those fields. And I think being part of a, being a resilient, um, <clears throat> disciple is knowing that connection and keeping that connection firmly in mind. It's very easy, a friend of mine pointed out, it's very easy for a barista to see the joy and the life-giving sustenance they bring to their customers. Harder sometimes for a barrister. You add an hour or two, and just the level of abstraction is different. And the same with finance. Sometimes it's just hard to see how that fits. But it is crucial. And I can tell you that because I worked with someone who was denied any meaningfulness in her work. One of my early jobs, I trained as a lawyer. One of my early jobs was going in, um, uh, this was before, kind of while I was studying, um, going into a firm that had been through a hostile takeover. You know what that is? It's basically when someone with a lot of money says, I want your firm, but I don't want your leadership. So they all get fired and they just take the whole company except the, the, the boss, the CEO. Now the thing is about that, they knew they couldn't trust the secretary of the old boss, right? Because she was very loyal. But also, you can't fire people, turns out, for being loyal to their boss. So what did they do? I'll tell you what they did. They put her in her old office, took away her computer, and she sat there from nine till five every day with a copy of New Idea and some nail polish. And I walked past her several times a day. And look, the first day it seemed fun. She was having a great time. Reading the paper, reading the magazine, and being paid for it. By day 16, it wasn't fun anymore. Because she'd been denied the meaning and purpose that is part of work. She was doing nothing useful. And eventually she quit. Now, she was being paid well, the conditions were fine, she got to read the paper. But we need to see that connection between our work and God or some purpose or our work will kill us. And that's one of the the struggles and puzzles of this sort of age we're in, this sort of um, world we're in that you, you, you don't necessarily have to get paid a lot to find satisfaction in your work. You just need to see how it's helping people. That's why firefighters actually have very high job satisfaction. That building was on fire. Now it's not. People are happy about that. All right? Very clear outcomes. And so understanding how our work fits in what God is doing in the world, I think, is really valuable. Two-thirds of Christian workers, higher than the rest of the population, two-thirds of Christian workers report that they, can, they see how their work matters to God. Let's work on the other third, but it's a good starting point. Two-thirds of Christian workers can see how their work matters to God, and that is an important factor, they also report, in their joy in their work. Not how much they get paid, not how prestigious their job is, but can you see how it helps, how it has a purpose? So I asked a bunch of people, just sampling some random friends who are far into their careers, where they find their joy in their work. Tony, he's a software engineer, he told me this. From being able to have an idea, play with it, and bring it to something that leads me to sit back and enjoy the God-given pleasure of being a creator. That's what gets him joy in his job as a software developer. 
Or David, a science teacher, I've always considered my work to be a vocation, a calling to serve and love others. My paycheck is a secondary consideration, just as well. I feel blessed in that regard, even when I'm tired, which is often, I find much joy in what I do. And this is really important because work is hard. Work is really hard, a lot of the time. We talked a bit about creation, but do you know that there's a follow-up to that story in chapter 3 of Genesis? When the world is subjected to frustration because of human sin. Since then, it's been a world of great beauty and great order and great purpose, but also a world of frustration and pain and danger where we get set back in our work, where we fail to transform the world the way we hoped. As the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us, you can work really hard and do a great job and then an idiot comes after you and undoes it all. Life is like that, according to Ecclesiastes. It's hard. It's full of many disappointments. On the plus side, it's short. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. My friend Renee reflects on her work for a demanding and ungrateful boss. In this season, my work day by day seems to consist mostly of patient negotiation with someone only able to communicate with pointing and varying degrees of yelling, non-stop cooking of meals that are often thrown from great heights for fun and wiping, so much wiping. She's a stay-at-home mum. I've wrestled a lot with my identity these days. To have gone to university and then become a stay-at-home mum especially when I don't feel I'm a very good one. God sees me even in the exhausting, repetitive and mundane moments where I question the value of everything that I'm attempting to do, she says. But she knows that she's working with God in something good, something valuable, that he is bringing to completion his masterpiece. And nothing we do towards that end is in vain. Nothing is wasted. Nothing we do if done for the Lord is wasted. And I think that's the most important thing that we can, that we can teach ourselves, to be honest. To see how what we're doing fits. Because you don't need the perfect job, actually, to do this. You don't need to find that job that just so perfectly fits with your desires and your loves that you would do it even if you weren't being paid. If you do, good on you. Most of us don't. You just need to see how it helps others, how it serves others, how God is doing something through you that is bringing joy and life and beauty to others. Take it from my friend Mark. He was a lawyer for 27 years and he told me that not a single day in his professional life did he look forward to going to work. Just think about that. And yet... When he became a Christian, midway through that career, he said it became easier to find, if not looking forward to-ness, at least satisfaction. Moments of joy even. That God understood how much work I put into it, my clients, even if they didn't know. It helped seeing God at work, overcoming problems. Seeing how he was helping other people making a positive difference in the world. Now, ours is a generation that has been taught to find our identity in work 
And friends, the bad news is that just will crush you. It just will crush you. As soon as you meet disappointment, as soon as your career doesn't go the way you hoped. And yet, if you can see your work as vocation, as something you're being called to do with and for God for the benefit of others, I think you can find joy in your work. Seeing how you are helping other people. Seeing how God has put you there in that workplace and all the office politics to bring peace and love and reconciliation where possible. Or at least just to do your job with integrity. To make beauty, to make prosperity, to make order. To work in hard places and to work for Jesus. Because we're children of the living God. That's who we are really. We're not just surgeons or lawyers or teachers or curators. We are those things too. But fundamentally we are children of the living God. We're more than our jobs. We're loved by him. And because of Jesus' work on earth, we can be restored to him despite our failings. And we have received a calling in life that will echo out through eternity. And that's why nothing you do at work whatever that is, nothing you do for Jesus will be lost. I'm going to invite you to to stand. We're going to sing. But I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray and thank God for his gifts to us, including the gift of work. So please stand and we'll pray. Our gracious God, our loving Heavenly Father, We do humbly thank you for all your gifts so freely given to us. For life and for health and for safety, for power to work and for leisure to rest and for all that is beautiful, true, good in creation and in human life. But above all, we praise you for our Saviour, Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection, for the gift of your Spirit, and for the hope of sharing in your glory. Fill us now with all the joy and the peace that comes from knowing this as true. That's in his name that we pray. Amen.